Hi, I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. Welcome to She Said, She Said podcast. Here on this podcast, we talk about the building blocks and the micro habits that help us create real and lasting influence. What do I mean by that? Well, we're talking about the kind of influence that helps you achieve your goals and whatever it is in life that you want to accomplish. But perhaps most importantly, it's the type of influence that helps you create real impact and that enables you to truly thrive. Hey friend, welcome to episode 281 of She Said, She Said podcast. This episode also happens to be the second in our collaboration series with the Southern Sea. We actually launched that series two weeks ago with episode 280. And I have to say um, a quick apology to you. I was in the process of moving, relocating office and home and all the things. And then I came down with a horrible, horrible cold. And you can still kind of hear that in my voice. So I apologize for my my the nasal way that I sound, um, but it delayed us just a little bit um, in terms of launching the series. But I am so excited to share today's guest with you for so many reasons. She's fabulous. But She also represents kind of a full circle moment, if you will. She is the reason why I learned about and got to know the Southern Sea in the first place. Her name is Lydia Finette, and she may be familiar to you. She has raised more than a billion dollars for charities all around the world as a benefit auctioneer. In fact, she is perhaps the most successful and accomplished benefit auctioneer in the country and potentially the world. She has also just launched her own auctioneer agency. It's called the Lydia Finette Agency, which is a boutique agency representing the best-in-class charity auctioneers. And Lydia helps to train them just as she did in her previous role at Christie's Auction House. There are many reasons why I think the world of Lydia, she is not only incredibly talented, but she's also incredibly generous and really puts a premium on not just networking, but also helping to encourage people to take that next big leap. She writes about confidence, but she also really spends a lot of effort helping other people to take that next step. And I think it's one of the things that's so interesting and so compelling about her and about her story. There's a lot packed into this episode, friend, and I think you're going to love it. Even if you've had a chance to hear from Lydia or talk to her or get to know her, I think you'll still probably learn things from this conversation that you might not have known otherwise. Again, this conversation is brought to you um, as part of our Southern Sea She Said, She Said podcast collaboration for 2024. And without further delay, here is Lydia Finette and episode 281. Enjoy. Lydia, welcome back to She Said, She Said. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be back with you. Well, I am so excited to have you for so many reasons, but one in particular, this is really like a full circle moment because 
you are, I think, the reason why I was introduced to and know about the Southern Sea in the first place. And my association- <laughs> You would not be the first person who said that, that's for sure. <laughs> my association with this group, and I'm sure that other, other folks tell you the same thing, it has just been life-changing in many respects. It really has been um, amazing. And so I am thrilled to have you on as part of our 2024 collaboration series. This is now the third year that we will have done this, and in large part because of you. So thank you very much for all of that. Uh, well, you are amazing to say that, but I might have introduced you. This is because of you. This has nothing to do with me. I, I made the initial intro because I think you're amazing, but you have built this and I am thrilled to be a part of it. Well, you are so nice to say that. I am so excited to talk to you always, but especially right now because you have launched something really remarkable. Um, before we jump into this, I just want to provide a little bit of background. So you are at the top of your career in the auction world. You have raised more than a billion dollars for charities around the world, and you decide, hmm, I think I'm going to go out on my own. <laughs> Let's talk about this really massive pivot and what led to this, Lydia. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's so funny because to me, it seems like the natural next step. And to a lot of the people who've known me for a long time, when I told them, they had this sort of like, oh yeah, of course, that makes sense. I would never have come up with it, but it makes a lot of sense. And that's sort of how I feel. So just to give anyone who's listening a quick primer, I was with Christie's Auction House for over two decades. I started working there right out of college. I became an auctioneer when I was 24 years old and I specialize in charity auctions. So basically for over 20 years, I've been on stages somewhere between 70 and 80 nights a year all over the country and frankly, all over the world, Amazing. raising money for different nonprofits. And as you can imagine with anything where you've spent that much time doing it, at some point you hit this moment where you realize that you know as much, if not more than anybody else out there. And that realization came to me about three or four years ago when I was getting asked to take literally the biggest auctions in the world, Robin Hood, you know, which raises $126 million in one night, or the Naples Winter Wine Festival, which every year ups the ante. This year we raised $33 million in an afternoon. And so wow. these types of large scale auctions are few and far between at the highest level. And I hit a point where I looked around and realized that I had taken every auction that I've ever wanted to take. And when you get to that point, you also realize you have to create your next step. You know, you can't wait around for someone to do it. And after 24 years at Christie's, I'd been running the strategic partnerships department for about 12 years. And many people who know this story know me. And I write about this in my book, In Claim Your Confidence. But my family was in a car accident. And it was really in my life a before car accident and after car accident. That's very much how my life feels now. And I was out of work for about three months at Christie's, which was the first time since college that I hadn't had a job for three months where I wasn't literally on my email all day, going into an office every single day, doing all the things you do in a corporate job. And in that moment, in the stillness of the moment, in the recovery time, and also in the post-COVID era where transition was something that we were all kind of thinking about, I think many of us are still thinking about it, I realized that I had come full circle in my job. I had done it for so long. I had loved it so much. I was at the point where I didn't want to do what I was doing anymore. And I knew that even the year before I talked to our president about 
the possibility of transitioning into an ambassadorship position, which at that time there was no appetite for. But a sort of series of things happened while I was gone on this sort of leave that I took to recover, one of which was that my boss had left. And as a result, strategic partnerships as a department was really being reevaluated in the company. Did we really need this? And so by the time I got back, the conversation was had. We're not even sure that we want strategic partnerships as a department anymore. We kind of want to parcel it out. Would this be an opportunity for you to transition into this ambassadorship? And it was interesting because I'd started strategic partnerships for Christie's. So a, a part of that felt like a grief, a grieving pro- right. process, or it should have, right. but it actually just felt like relief to me. Mm-hmm. I felt like I was being given this gift of leaving a company that I loved with one foot still in the door as an ambassador. And then this sort of runway of opportunity, which I've always been an entrepreneur. That's why I started strategic partnerships within Christie's. And so it just... I can't even tell you how excited I was after the initial, like, oh my God, I'm not going to be going back to an office. And oh my gosh, like the healthcare for our family comes through me. And oh my gosh, this is a lot. There was also the belief and confidence in the fact that what came forward and what was going to come was going to be a true, exciting amazing adventure, which I'm always up for. (laughs) And interestingly, you know, it all comes back to the summit for me because I remember going to the summit. I'd found this out about a week before the summit in 2022. And I remember going and I was interviewing Morgan Hutchinson and Brett Hutchinson from Shop Guru on stage. And I was asking questions, but I was actually asking questions because I wanted to know. I would be so interested in seeing that video because it was me just asking about being an entrepreneur and how you build a business and all the things that I was about to do. And I remember, I will never forget Brett saying this. He's like, you know, he got fired from his job where he'd worked. And he's like, I remember saying to Morgan, I never want to go back to a corporate role because it's that paycheck, that drip of the paycheck makes you believe that you have to have it. When in fact, left to your own devices, if you're an entrepreneurial person with an entrepreneurial spirit, you could probably do more than that. And I remember hearing those words and thinking, yes, exactly. And so the agency for me was basically the year that I was an ambassador for Christie's, like thinking about what that looked like. I had to sit out a year non-compete essentially. And so when they came back to me with the contract, I couldn't quite bring myself to sign it. You know, I, I, it sat in my inbox for a while, like probably well over a month. And I'd kind of played phone tab with the person who was my relationship manager at Christie's who I'd known forever. And I was on a podcast for Barstool Sports and the woman, the CEO, Erica, asked me at the end of our conversation, you know, do you have an agent? And I said, yeah, I have a speaking agent. And she was like, but do you, do you have an agent for anything else? And I was like, well, I have a literary agent. You know, I've written books and um, I have a talent manager. You know, it's like I have all these different people. <laughs> right. And she said, no, but do you have an auctioneering agency? And I'm going to tell you, Laura, I had only talked about this with my husband and my best friend. And I said, no, but I'm going to start an auctioneering agency. And again, if you listen <laughs> right to that, that podcast, you I mean, you can almost see it's a videotape. You can almost see it in my face. I think I said, like, I don't think I've told anyone that before. (laughs) And we finished the podcast and I was in her office and I said, "Uh, um, when is that podcast going to come out? And she said, two to three weeks. And I was just like, oh my God, I have not told anyone that I'm doing this. I'm still technically working for Christy. Like I, oh my God. 
But I have to say at that moment, I was like, this is when you jump. You said it for yeah. a reason. This is when you jump. So I went running home to my husband. I ran in and I said, oh my God, Chris, I just told the CEO of Barstool Sports on our podcast that I'm launching an auctioneering agency. And he didn't even look up from his computer. He said, um, yeah, but that's how you do things. You told the New York Times you were going to write a book before you'd written a book. And I was like, oh, you're right. Like This is why you have to be married to someone who knows you well. Exactly. He was like, yeah, this is what you do. You paint yourself into a corner. There are no options. You jump. And so for the next two weeks, I called the woman who designed my website. In my mind, I already knew the colors. It had to be green because green's the color of money. Like I knew everything <laughs> that I wanted it to be. I thought through all the pieces, but yeah. I had to really force myself to say the words. And then it was like, I, it was almost like I was shot out of a cannon. Like I haven't stopped since I made that proclamation um, on Erica's podcast. And that it's was amazing. the beginning of my pivot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's amazing on so many levels. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, you know, you are, you write about confidence. You write about where it comes from. You write about how you can really master the confidence game, if you will. Let's talk a little bit about the lessons that you draw from your books um, as it relates to, to confidence. Because I hear that story and I, and I think about my own journey and I think about other women who are listening. And I think about, at least for me, identity was a big challenge that I had to get over in making a pivot because I had worked for other people and other entities for my entire career. I'd worked in politics, basically, uh, working for elected officials, working for the government, um, and then working for a big corporate entity where my, you know, my personal identity was very tied up in that organization. And part of the challenge for me in leaving was in having the confidence to say, yeah, I can just be Laura Cox Kaplan. I don't have to be with such and such. Yeah. Talk about whether that was an issue for you and maybe advice that you have for folks for getting past that. Yeah. You know, we talked about this when I was on stage with Lisa Licht, who wrote her mm -hmm. book on brand, which is such a fantastic book about this exact thing. You work for a company. I was Lydia from Christie's. You know, right. anyone who introduced me, especially in a place like New York where it is so business driven, for over two decades, anyone who introduced me, it was like, oh, this is Lydia Finette. She's from Christie's Auction House. This is Lydia Finette. She's from Christie's. It was just like this thing. I wrote my first book when I was at Christie's. It's on the back cover of The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You. It was like senior executive at Christie's. It was right. always about Christie's. And so, Yes, that was a huge part of why leaving felt so scary. And frankly, the reason it took me so long to actually leave. Um, but I think what, what I would say to that on the flip side is that there is something about taking with you what you've learned and becoming your whole self mm -hmm. and taking ownership of those things. Because what I realized, but I didn't really validate it until I left Christie's, was for the longest time I was always worried that because I was a charity auctioneer and I worked at Christie's, when I left Christie's, I would no longer be considered as a charity auctioneer. Mm. Now, what I also knew over two decades, especially in the last sort of five to six years of my career, was people no longer went to me at Christie's. They would contact me through social media. They would contact me um, through Gmail. They would contact me through friends. It was never about coming in through the main line of Christie's or Christie's receiving the information first. It came to me personally. And so I knew that that was 
a reality. I knew people valued the skill that I had outside of the four walls of Christie's, but that was certainly a huge, that was a huge scary thing to me. And at some point I just had to say, look, if they're going to come with me, they're going to come with me. If they're not, they're not. Mm-hmm. And it is what it is. The people who are with me are going to be joyous and excited to have me on their stage. And if they don't, then they don't. And I'll tell you one of the most remarkable parts about it for me was that the owner of Christie's is a man named Francois Pinot, whose son, Francois-Henri Pinot, is married to Selma Hayek. And he is the CEO of Caring, which is the holding company that owns Gucci and Balenciaga and Alexander McQueen and all of these amazing brands that everybody knows of. And their family also owns Christie's. And Caring decided that they were going to do their first foundation event ever. Selma Hayek was going to host it. It was going to be this amazing thing. And I know the CEO of Caring quite well. And he called me and he said, "Um, listen, you know, we want to put together this auction. And so we need some help. Would you mind just advising? And at this point, I was still a Christie's ambassador. And I was like, yes, absolutely. If you want me to put together an auction, I can I can do that for you. And I know how to make a million dollars for you if that's what you want to do. And I did. I sat down with him. I went through every single lot. We figured out exactly what the evening should look like, even in terms of the makeup of the guests. And sure enough, that night I got on stage and with the 10 lots we sold, I made $750,000. And then I threw in an an impromptu paddle raise and just asked people for money and closed that gap and made a million dollars. And that was the kind of skill that I was like, there are very few people in the world who would even understand the way that could work or have enough confidence to get on stage and push an audience to give another $250,000 without even getting anything in return. Like that is a, a skill that I have after 22 years on stage. Sure. Um, when I left my Christie's ambassadorship and launched my agency, um, one of the first calls I got was from the CEO of Caring to congratulate me on the agency and let me know that they would still be working with me, even though the owner of Caring also owns Christie's. Wow. And to me, that was, I didn't need that validation, to be honest, because I was content with whatever business I would have and whatever that looked like. But to me, that was really a moment where I was like, oh, okay, we're done. Like, this is what it is. And it is, regardless of everything and any company that I work with, this is my skill. I've taken it with me and I go. So for me, that full circle moment was really like the final piece. But I think I was 99% of the way there because I've learned over time that if you just keep working and you keep doing what you're good at and you keep getting better, people notice and people follow. Yeah, I love that. I absolutely love that. Okay, you've hit on another topic that clearly is one of your many superpowers, and that is understanding sales. And whether you are an auctioneer or whether you're selling a podcast or whether you're selling party skirts, it doesn't matter. If you understand how to appeal to someone and how to connect with them, that's really kind of the secret. But I'd love for you to break it down for us because I think what you do in bringing that to bear in the auction setting, it, it's it's relevant regardless, right? For any person listening, they will learn from sort of your technique and, and tactic for doing that. So kind of break it down for us, Lydia. Teach us yeah. how to sell how <laughs> in to the sell. most effective way. <laughs> in the most effective way. So first and foremost, the most important part of sales is authenticity. People can spot a liar and they don't even know what they're looking at. They just know that it doesn't make them feel good or comfortable. Mm. So what I would say to you first and foremost is sell as yourself. Come at a conversation about anything that you're selling from your own point of view with your own words. 
don't watch somebody else do it and try to emulate their style. That feels wrong to people and they don't even know why. They just know that they don't like it. So that's number one. Number two, listen. Sales is about filling somebody's need with what you have, not shoving what you have down their throat. And that is the most remarkable thing to watch when done incorrectly. Because if you are selling something and somebody has no appetite for it and you're selling it the way that you think it should be sold without understanding why they might need it, you're never going to make the sale. So you have to listen to what people say and you have to ask questions to get there. I have to do that on stage, even at night. If I go out on stage in front of a thousand people that I've never been on stage for before, and I start selling a lot, which is an item, let's pretend it's a house in in Mexico for a week. Like this is a good charity auction lot. Um, If I get on that stage, I've never met any of these people. I don't know their bandwidth. I don't know their financial capacity. And I I start off and I'm like, this amazing house, and I'll start the bidding at $15,000. I can watch the audience shut down in 10 seconds. Because how many people out there can give 15,000? And if they wanted to give 15,000, how many people want to start there at an auction? Not many. Mm-hmm. So what I like to do is get on stage and ask the audience, like, I don't, we've never met before. So what I would love is for anyone here, and they're typically the most intelligent, best dressed, funniest person in the room, just throwing that out there. I would love to know where I should start my bidding. And then I just wait and I just hold. And eventually... I'm, I'll stand up in silence on stage. People get so uncomfortable. It's it's such a moment of power for me because I'm right. like, I'll be here all night. Like I, my parents, my kids are going to bed and I don't want to be there to watch that bedtime routine right now. So like I've got as many hours as you guys need up here. And so eventually somebody will raise their hand and start the bidding for me. And it's typically higher than I would have started because I usually started $1,000. The person will probably like get amped up and throw in a little bit more But ultimately, what that shows the audience is that I am going to allow them to be part of it. I'm going to allow them to tell me what that pricing looks like. And if the first person who starts me is like $500 as opposed to $1,000, which is probably where I would have started, I understand that my audience doesn't have the capacity for those huge gifts. And so I stay in smaller increments. And I don't try to like run up, run it up. I try to gain their confidence and their their trust. And so, you know, I say to people post-COVID, you know, people would come in to stores and I would get a lot of people calling me about, you know, what to do post COVID with sales pitches. I'm like, ask them the question that everybody just went through. How, how have things been for you since 2020? People tell you everything you need to know. Oh man, it's been great. You know, I just happen to be the person who invested at Peloton and things are flying. Great. You are selling them that, you know, head to toe outfit that costs a ridiculous amount of money because the person's ready to celebrate. Things aren't great. You know, it was a really tough couple of years et cetera, et cetera. My business isn't doing well. Like they'll tell you things if you keep asking questions and then you sell to that. Yeah. I love that. It's, it makes it a very collaborative process, right? It's like a partnership. You are connecting with that person. You're validating that person. You're seeing that person, right? Yeah. Yeah. Laura, I mean, how many times have you bought something that you didn't want just because you like the person? Oh, so many times. Right? It's like the sales person. I'm like, oh no, I can tell I like you already. Oh God, this you might hit your sales quota with me today. I don't even need any of this stuff. Um, that's the reality. I feel like people say that to me when I get off stage all the time. They think we're friends and they're therefore they, they bought this house in Mexico because we're friends. And I'm like, no, we're not friends. I, I'm sure I would like you. We've never met before. Maybe we will be friends, but I don't really know the answer to that. But they feel like 
were I'm trustworthy because I am. I'm yeah. not going to sell them something that they don't want because I made that mistake myself early on in my auctioneering days where I bought a house in the Berkshires that I sold to myself on the first bid. And it oh. was a horror show. It was a horror show. There were like lace dolls. It was the scariest place I've ever been. I invited five couples to come with us. Everyone was gone within the day. Um, <laughs> so I know from personal experience, I don't sell things unless I know what they are and that they're good. So, you know, I feel like people understand that about me and they appreciate that. I love that. I absolutely love that. One of your other big superpowers that I want to talk about is your tireless support of other people and your commitment to, to networking. And you you talk about networking and how to network, but but to me, having been the beneficiary of your network and your efforts, it is all about supporting other people and helping them see something that maybe they don't even see in themselves or that you know, heaven forbid anybody listening, I suspect this will this will ring true to a lot of people that hear this. Sometimes it helps for someone to say to us, of course you can do that. Why wouldn't you do that? You know, you have this big audacious dream, but it takes someone else sometimes validating that for you. Let's talk a little bit about your philosophy. I think it it seems like it's led to the creation of your two amazing books, but maybe talk a little bit about where that comes from and why that's such an important sort of value for you. Well, the catchphrase network or die is from my dad, who, as mm. I say in my first book, like if he's walking through a door, you better believe the person holding the door has his business card on the way through. My dad networks <laughs> with everyone, which when you're a child is so embarrassing because, you know, my father just talks to anyone and everyone. But what I've realized over the course of my life is that it's probably the biggest skill that you should exercise from the minute you realize that it's going to be an important part of your life because your network has the opportunity, similar to investing, to build over time, right? It's just building and growing and building and growing. And the more you spend time networking and helping other people, the more time that that will come back to you, sometimes because of that person, sometimes because that person meets someone and they want to meet you. And so I genuinely love networking. I think there there is nothing more exciting than watching somebody really rise and succeed as a result of a connection that you made. And I genuinely just get joy out of it more than anything. I found in business, it's also the most amazing thing because people know that I have a big network and they reach out to me for that network, which I'm always delighted to share. I love making introductions with people. But then as a result of that, things happen. And then I get invited to do things because two people I've set up become people who are networking and then they start doing something, then they involve me back in. So it, I don't know, it's just, it creates this incredibly dynamic part of your life that's happening all the time. And so, you know, I know some people are like, oh, I don't want to meet any more people. I'm like, I will meet anyone and I will help anyone that I can because I don't ever think that that gets old. And I'll tell you, honestly, Laura, you know, I'm a keynote speaker and I say to people all the time, we don't realize how many people over the course of your life you can impact by just mm. having a coffee meeting or, you know, just chatting with someone in line. I had a woman reach out to my speaking agent about another speaker from CAA. And my speaking agent was like, I actually think you might have a better fit with this woman, Lydia Finette. And the woman was like, oh, she took a coffee me meeting with me 18 years ago, 18 years ago, Laura. Wow. And introduced me to all these people and all these things happen. And I would love to hire her 
18 years ago. I didn't even remember her name. I mean, it was just the craziest thing. And I think about that over time. Like I did that just because I like meeting people and look how that worked out 18 years later. So I would just say to people, like, put your hand out. If you, if you think of something that could be helpful to someone, don't ever be afraid to connect people and be excited for them when things go well, because it doesn't cost anything in your life to be happy for other people. And I think sometimes people choose the opposite. They see people who are succeeding as a threat. And I look around and see these incredible people in my lives who are successful and loving what they're doing. And that gives me energy and joy. And I want that to happen for as many people as possible, truly. Yeah. To tie this back to the Southern Sea, you know, what what you just said resonates so deeply because it really is about how can we collaborate and work together. And you don't you don't see this sort of the competition that sometimes can creep in and keep people from wanting to collaborate or find maybe other pathways or or ways of tackling a challenge that they haven't even thought about and how when they work together, you may end up with something that is very different, but even more remarkable that benefits both of your businesses, which I think is so incredible. And I think what you've just said really encapsulates that whole notion so beautifully. So Lydia, let's pivot a bit and talk a little bit. So you wrote your first book, um, you are the most or the most powerful woman in the room is you. Is you. Um, yeah. That was 2017? Uh, published in 2019. April 2019. Of, April 9th of 2019. Yeah. 2019. And it's it like a baby. Been, I still remember the date. <laughs> <laughs> it's been tremendously successful, but you've just written a follow-up book to that. Let's talk a little bit yes. about the differences between those two books. Yeah. It's so funny. The most powerful woman in the room is you is having this complete resurgence, which I just think is the funniest thing in the world. It's been this amazing, (laughs) I have an author's portal so I can see what my book sales look like week over week. And something's happened in the past year. I don't know if it's like the year of the girl again, or people are realizing that you actually do have to work to be successful. So they need a guide because that's really what the most powerful woman in the room is you. I mean, that book for me, I was the peak of my career. I'd been at Christie's for 20 years. I had just published this book. I mean, it was just the most amazing part of my life. I will never forget it. I launched my book at Christie's with a hundred women in the boardroom where I'd run events in my nascent days at Christie's. So it just felt very full circle. And that book was written when I was pregnant with my third child, like on stage at night, doing my job during the day sprinting home to put my babies to bed. I mean, I was on a hamster wheel that was that had no end in sight. And as a result of that, you are getting all those girl boss tips that I had in my sort of mid-30s about raising kids and, and, and not even raising kids, but really just having children and managing it all and, right. and just you know putting your nose to the grindstone and working and doing the things that I had learned would make me successful. So that's the most powerful woman in the room is you. Then COVID hit. And I wasn't feeling like the most powerful woman in the room as you because I was the school cafeteria worker and I was, you know, running a global team and doing virtual charity auctions in my living room, which must be the worst thing that has ever happened. And I hope it will never happen again. But, you know, it was just such a stark difference. And I'm such an extrovert. And I didn't really feel like writing. I had written on my roadmap for the year for 2020 to write my second book. And I just didn't want to write. I felt really just overwhelmed by everything coming. 
I felt overwhelmed by what was happening in the world. I mean, there were just so many different things happening, as you guys remember, in 2020. But sometime at the end of that year, I realized that I was getting a lot of questions about confidence. And they were coming in through my DMs, like, you seem very confident. And I felt like after the initial crater that we all hit in March of 2020, I got COVID immediately. I was very sick. It was just like all of these horrible things that happened kind of came out of that. And then I, I realized like, this is actually a moment when I thrive. Like I actually thrive when we hit rock bottom and I've got to kind of figure out what's going on. I took a 40% pay cut at work. My husband had lost his job. I mean, it was really dark days. And somehow in that, that sort of core inner strength that I've always felt I had was like, here we go. Like you're going to, you are going to be able to be like strong enough to handle this. So I started an Instagram live to try to like kind of get people inspired, call the most powerful woman in the room is dot, 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 where I would interview a woman every afternoon for 30 minutes about what they were doing. Business owners, shop owners, entrepreneurs, like what are we doing? Here is sort of like basically a way for people to connect and listen to other people's stories. And if you're listening, please donate to this charity that I've worked with for a long time. So sort of setting that gear into motion felt right. And again, like a lot of questions about confidence coming my way. Like, how are you doing this? Like, where are your kids doing? Like, how are you getting this done? What's going on? And I started writing a little bit during that time about kind of what was taking place and what I was seeing and what I was feeling. And over the course of the year, that question about confidence just kept coming up. I taught a masterclass. I sent out a questionnaire to the hundred people who took it over the course of the first month, asking them all about you know, these different things. And 92 of the 92 of the hundred surveys mentioned lacking confidence. Wow. I used to be confident, but post COVID, I don't have any confidence anymore. Like, what do I do? How do I do that? You know, it's just like, I, I was seeing it. And as a writer, that becomes your white space. And when you start to see it and hear it that much, mm it's time to start writing again. And so as we kind of pushed into 2021, I called my agent and I was like, I have a book idea on confidence. And she was like, here we go. She's like, can I read it first? She's like, I'm ready. <laughs> and so I sold my second book based on a chapter, which is what I did with my first book. And then I spent really the better part of like six months writing it. And then at the very end of that book, I um, it basically was like, right when we had a car accident. So yeah. the last chapter of the book really sums up everything that I wrote in the book and my thesis that was basically, if you spent enough time over the course of your life, which I feel like I had in various parts of my life, I'd written 11 chapters of the book before the accident. And every single one of those chapters was how I had become more confident in a certain part of my life, in work, as a mom, mm -hmm. as an auctioneer, as an author, like all of these lessons that I learned about, you know, maintaining positivity, even during the difficult times, challenging yourself and throwing yourself outside of your comfort zone that when things go wrong, you can still handle things. It was almost like I had this proof of concept because when the accident happened, the one thing I was always sure about was that if I lived, I would be okay. And I would wow. be strong enough for my family. And I think anybody who knew me throughout that would tell you like, I was, my body was crushed. I was mm. getting a spinal fusion. And, and after those first couple of days after the surgeries and after the pain re receded, that like strength just came back stronger than ever, really like mm -hmm. tested more than ever. And as my dad said, he's like, you were, you've been like a Phoenix rising from the ashes. And I think from that, all of these things have come, the auctioneering agency, like the ability to try a million things without fear of failure. Like a lot of that came as a result of 
the end of that book, that that accident and that sort of final piece where I say it in, I think it was in the, the epilogue where I say, like, I wrote the last chapter. My book was due December of 2022. And I wrote the last chapter and submitted it at 6.30 p.m. on New Year's Eve because I was like, I will get this book done, even with my broken back. Like, And I will show you, not just write the words, but I'm going to live this life so you see what it looks like to live a confident life. And I will lead by example. So it was a really, that that book for me was such a labor of love. It took so much to finish it on deadline, as you can imagine, after after so much. But I'm so proud of it. And it's a, it's a different book, but I think you'll still find the joyousness and you'll still find the qualities that I believe are what attracted people to the first book. Um, it got a little more real because I think we were all there. Yeah. Yeah. Did it, did it change anything about the way that you had approached confidence? I mean, you, 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 you talk about it as a skill, as something that, that any person can build no matter what the circumstances are, but did your, did your whole sort of perspective change as a result of both the writing of that book and then ultimately the subsequent accident and then the publishing of the book? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think my confidence became, I think I can handle anything and then really feeling like I could handle anything. You know, six months after our car accident, one of my best friends was diagnosed with colorectal cancer mm. and she died within the year. Oh, God. And yeah, I mean, it, it was a lot. It was, it was, so, it was so much, you know, I was like kind of coming out of this, this, part of my life and then literally got the call from her that she had aggressive stage three colorectal cancer. And at every turn, we thought it was going to change at every turn, the miracles and the hope and the praying and all of those things you, you think it's going to turn because she was too young and she had young children and she was such a light. But the gift of that accident for me was that I could be very close to her. I wasn't scared to talk to her about the scary things. Um, I didn't run away from the hard conversations with her because I knew she needed to have them. And I knew she was getting that from her family as well. But I think sometimes someone who's not quite a family member, but kind of feels like it too, um, is a good person to have. So, so yes, I think my confidence fundamentally changed and I do believe it's a skill that you build over time in the good times and the bad times. But, you know, if we live an easy life where we never put ourselves out there, then we'll never know. And what I've realized about confidence is the more you put yourself out there, the more confident you become. I said in the first part of the first day of this year, like this is the year that I find fun and failure. Like I am throwing paint at so many different walls. And if it, if it hits great and if it doesn't, you know, I launched my first retreat and it was supposed to launch in August and the, the people that I was working with kind of disappeared for a little bit. So we ended up launching it in November for a January retreat date. And I remember saying to my husband, I was like, I really hope one person comes because otherwise this is going to be really embarrassing. <laughs> um, you know, at one point we had four people and I was like, this is really, it's going to be a lot, four days and four people. But then in the end, you know, I'd always said the magic number for me was 12 and we ended up with 12 and it was so great. And it went so well that we're launching it again. I'm going to announce it in the next couple of weeks for 2025. So I just think for people, you know, sometimes you just need to hear that failure happens to everyone. And it's not something that should stop you. It's not something that you should look around and think, oh God, these people are going to think this about me because honestly, who cares? Life's yeah. short, truly life is short. Yeah. So try the things, jump in, 
tell people if it doesn't go well. The, the failure stories are more often more fun than the ones that go well, you know? Totally. And, it, and it's data. It's great data to help you yes. build that next thing. And if you can keep yes. your perspective and your mindset focused on the fact that what, what is failure anyway, right? Get rid of the word and just use, use it as data. It's experience. Yeah. It's going to help prepare you. Yeah. Lydia Finette, you are just amazing. I'm so delighted to talk to you yet again. You are a wonderful oh, person, a great friend, and I really appreciate you spending time with us as part of our, she said, she said, um, the Southern Sea Collaboration Series. So thank you again. Oh, well, I am such a huge fan of yours. I love this podcast and I love the Southern Sea. Cherie and Whitney have created such a magical spot. I always say that you know, I do so many conferences and go to so many different things. And I always say to my husband, like, this one's for me. <laughs> I'll do all the other work, but the Southern Summit is for me. I get to go, I get to moderate, I get to bring amazing women and introduce them to an amazing group of women who are there ready to learn. So it's a yeah. pleasure to be here and I can't wait for more Southern Sea. Hey, friend, to learn a bit more about the amazing Lydia Finette, check out the show notes for this episode, episode 281. There I've included a link to the Lydia Finette Agency for aspiring auctioneers, as well as links to Lydia's fabulous books and a link to the Southern Sea. As always, friend, thanks so much for being part of She Said, She Said podcast. I'm really, really grateful. If you get a minute, be sure and leave us a review. I'd love to hear what you thought about this episode or frankly, any of our She Said, She Said podcast episodes. And you can also contact me via email. Just send me a note uh, at info at she said dot media and it'll come right to my desk. I'd really love to hear your thoughts again on this or any of our episodes. In the meantime, friend, take care. Thanks for making this investment of time in yourself. And I'll talk to you again next week. And remember, this episode of She Said, She Said podcast was produced by She Said, She Said Media and the Southern Cootery. Take care.